Hebrews chapter 13. You'll find that in the church Bibles in page 1212 and then in the, the larger print Bibles 1877. Hebrews 13 and we'll read the first nine verses of chapter 13. Keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers. For by so doing, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. Continue to remember those in prison as if you were together with them in prison. And those who are ill-treated as if you yourselves were suffering. Marriage should be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept pure. For God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. Keep your lives free from the love of money, and be content with what you have. Because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. It is good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace, not by eating ceremonial foods, which is of no benefit to those who do so. This is God's word. But as we read these verses, we might wonder how this fits with the rest of this letter. The previous chapters have been full of big truths. But this is a series of instructions, pretty specific instructions. So how does this fit? Well, since the middle of chapter 10, the writer has been dealing with what we've called new covenant life. The first part of the letter dealt with who Jesus Christ is. Then the middle section, chapters 8 9 and the first half of chapter 10 explain the new covenant in Christ's blood. They told us how Jesus' work on the cross gives us acceptance with God and access to God. When we come to God through Jesus, we can come with confidence. Then, since the middle of chapter 10, we've been thinking about living new covenant life. It's a life of faith, we've seen. Trusting in God's promises. Living for what God has promised. Rather than living for lesser temporary things. Chapter 11 called those temporary things the fleeting pleasures of sin. Chapter 12 acknowledged that this life of faith is often full of struggles. But it told us the struggles are not meaningless. This life is a gymnasium, chapter 12 said. 
It's where our loving Father is training us in order that we may share in his holiness. So the way to approach this life is to live now in a way that shows where we belong, where we're headed to. Our destiny is the heavenly Jerusalem, a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And so chapter 12 said, let's live for that kingdom. Let's show by our lives that we love the kingdom of God rather than the kingdom of this world, which is going to pass away. And last time we said the way to do that is by investing our lives in worship. Because only worship will last. Since we are designed for an eternity of worship, let's begin now to worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. That's how chapter 12 ended. And the chapter break is a bit unfortunate because it gives the impression chapter 13 is starting out on a new direction and giving us a new thought. The chapter breaks were not in the original text. And if we take this chapter break out, what we realize is chapter 13 is showing us what it looks like for God's accepted children to worship him acceptably. This is a chapter about worship. And it's not about how human beings can try to earn God's acceptance. We are accepted because we've put our hope in Jesus. This is about how God's new covenant children live for his glory here and now. And what chapter 13 describes is a worshipping community. When we read this chapter, if any of us thought we could do worship as individual Lone Ranger Christians, this chapter shows us we can't. If any of us thought we could worship God simply by coming to a worship service, if we thought we could worship God without participating in significant Christian relationships, this chapter shows us we can't. It shows us the church is not a class where you show up for the lecture, take your notes, then nod to your classmates and go home. It shows us the church is not a club where you meet to cheer on your team or compare your model trains or try to get your 18 holes in before it starts raining and then go back to the rest of your life. This chapter shows us the church is a community of men, women, and children who share life together. It tells us that as God's people, our lives are woven together. At least they're supposed to be. We are to care for one another and we are to hold one another accountable. And this chapter gives us three characteristics of a truly worshipping community. First, the church is a community of love. In verses 1 to 4. Verse 1 says, Keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. 
Literally, let brotherly love remain. So brotherly love is already characteristic of these people. And they have to work to sustain it. Because this is worship. Verse 1 is explaining how we do what the end of chapter 12 called us to do. Worship God acceptably. And from day one of the church, brotherly love has been a core distinctive of the church. Jesus said to his disciples in John's Gospel, A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. So how do we show what God is worth to us? That's what worship is. We show his worth to us by loving his family. Men, women and children bought with his own blood. And we love them not just by sitting in the same room as them, not just by smiling at them, not just by wishing them well. We love them by sharing our lives with them. Many of you have physical brothers or sisters. I don't, I'm an only child. But at the moment I'm getting to watch two brothers growing up in my house. I'm seeing something I haven't seen before at close quarters. So think about your own situation with brothers and sisters, particularly growing up. What kind of relationship do brothers and sisters have? Is it formal? Do they pass in the hallway with a polite smile and a nod? No, there are no airs and graces between siblings. Your siblings know you at your very best and at your very worst and everything in between. Your siblings have seen you with snot on your face. They have been around you when you were sick. And when you were blubbering with disappointment. When you were irritable and snappy. They've been around you when you were bursting with excitement that you couldn't hold in. They know all of your weaknesses and your insecurities. You cannot pretend with your brothers and sisters. They know you too well. At least that's the case while you're in the same house. I'm sure it gets different when you, your lives go in different directions. But while you are sharing life, while you're living in close, close quarters, you cannot have airs and graces with your brothers and sisters. And that's the kind of love God's family is called to. A love that really knows one another. None of you chose your physical siblings. And you didn't choose these people either. God brought you into his family and here his family is. Hebrews says, love these people with brotherly love. Don't keep them at arm's length. Share your life with them. That is how you worship God. 
The church is not a class, it's not a club, it's a community. A community where you love your Christian brothers and sisters. But if we stopped here, what would happen? If we took this on board from verse 1 and we made this our only measure of a loving community, what would happen? We would become a closed community, right? The church would become a wonderful, nurturing place for those who were in, but it would be like a secret society. It might be wonderfully tight and interconnected, but it would be closed to outsiders. And so, look what verse 2 adds to verse 1. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers. There's a play on words here. Verse 1 said, let brotherly love remain. Verse 2 says, literally, don't forget stranger love. The worshipping community is to demonstrate both kinds of love. Now we need to think about this because we all know and we're regularly reminded by the news there are predators in our society. There are people who want to get into close sharing communities in order to prey on vulnerable people. And the New Testament does not call us to be naive. And so in this fellowship, our approach is you have to be a member of the church before you can be involved in leading any ministry in the church. That's because we want to know you and trust you before we give you responsibility. So we do background checks. We have safeguarding training days like we did Saturday a week ago. We want to be as careful as we can be to protect the members of this community. We want this to be a safe place. And so, without being naive, we still listen to and accept what the New Testament calls us to do. It tells us that a true worshipping community will be a community that loves the stranger. The other week I was talking to someone who I'll describe as a local resident, meaning he lives very close to this building. And he called me over because he was objecting to some of the people we have at one of the church ministries. His comment was, those aren't the kind of people you want at church. And we may laugh a little bit. But we may also need to ask ourselves, do we ever think that way ourselves? Are there certain kinds of people we would be happier not to see? Are there certain individuals we'd be happier not to see at church? Someone has said Christianity was in New Testament times and still should be the religion of the open door. Loving the stranger is part of our worship of God. Last week after the bombing in Manchester, we heard in the news about all kinds of kindness 
that were showed to strangers in the aftermath of that, in the hours that followed. Admirable acts of kindness. But we'd probably agree those things were newsworthy because they are unusual. Increasingly, our society is just too busy and too suspicious to do those kind of things. But the church is to be characterized by those kind of things. So how do you and I find the mindset that will make us welcoming? We remember that we are the strangers God has loved. In Ephesians, Paul writes this to Gentile Christians. Remember that at that time, that's before they were part of the church, you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. That is the reality of our experience if we are Christians. We are people who used to be strangers, who used to be far away, who used to be outsiders, but God has welcomed us in. And so we can be open and we can be welcoming to strangers ourselves because that's what God has done for us. Verse 2 adds something else. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers for by so doing, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. This is probably referring to something recorded in Genesis chapter 18. Abraham welcomed three travelers and gave them hospitality. And those three travelers turned out to be angels with a message from God. This time next year, Abraham, you're going to have a son. And the point of using that here is welcome the stranger. And who knows what blessing God might send through the stranger. This is not a guarantee. Love strangers and you're going to get angels. But it is a reminder some people have welcomed strangers and got angels. Then verse 3 says, Love your persecuted brothers and sisters. Continue to remember those in prison as if you were together with them in prison and those who are ill-treated as if you yourselves were suffering. We know from earlier in Hebrews, this is referring specifically to those imprisoned or ill-treated because of their commitment to Christ. And so for us, This means we find ways to look beyond our village and beyond our nation. We find ways to love the worldwide church. And Open Doors is one organization that helps us remember those men and women. The mainstream news has a tendency to shy away from mentioning persecution of Christians. But it goes on. 
And if we dig around, we find a significant amount of it goes on in the world. And so at least in our prayers, if not in other ways, we must not forget our persecuted brothers and sisters. It is part of our worship to God. And here's the last aspect of what it means to be a community of love. It means that we love through sexual purity. Verse 4. Marriage should be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept pure. For God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. Sexually immoral in the New Testament means anything outside of God's blueprint for sex. According to the Bible, sex is for the context of a marriage, relationship between a man and a woman. Anything outside of that, according to the Bible, is sexual immorality. We probably understand that, but we still probably want to ask, what is this verse doing here? How does it fit here? Well, it's here to show we cannot truly be a community of love if we think we can live our personal lives any way that we like. I would bet there are plenty of socially concerned people outside of the church who would love verses 1 to 3. A tightly knit community that's also welcoming to strangers, that has a global outlook and concern. Great. But those same socially concerned people will snort at verse 4. How restrictive. How intrusive. My sexual behavior is my own business. It's nobody else's business. And so maybe living in this climate as Christians, we feel we ought to soft pedal on this. Can we really even say this sort of thing anymore? Isn't this going to turn people away from the church if we talk about this? Well, to begin with, let's realize verse 4 was just as radical when it was first written as it is today. If you look up descriptions of the Greco-Roman world, you will discover the attitude to sex was anything goes. But Christians were different from the very beginning. Now, yes, there were exceptions in the way Christians behaved. If you read 1 Corinthians, you'll see that. But those cases were so noteworthy because they were out of character for what the church was called to be. Sexual immorality in the church has always been out of place. But again, we have to ask, why are we being called to live this way? And the answer is, we cannot be a loving community if we think our sexual behavior is nobody's business but our own. Sex as God intended it creates powerful bonds between people. It's the basis for a strong, healthy community. 
Sex outside of God's blueprint is destructive. Destructive to individuals and to the community around those individuals. It creates hurt and mistrust and a climate of selfishness. Whenever my desires are what take precedence, whenever my own gratification is what matters most, if I'm willing to take sex without giving first the commitment of marriage, then I'm not loving others, I'm using them. And so Hebrews tells us, in the church, those who are not married are to be respected sexually. First Timothy calls young men in the church to treat young women in the church as sisters with absolute purity. Teenage girls are not treated with purity outside of the church. If the church is to be a loving community, they had better be treated with purity inside the church. Our church community should stand out as a place where single women are free from sexual pressure. And where single men are not being sexually enticed and led on. Our church community should be a place where marriage is honored by all. Where married people don't flirt with people they're not married to. And single people don't flirt with married people. Why? Because we're to be a loving community. And it is never loving to fool around with the bonds of marriage. A lot of people in the time of the early church looked at the church. They weren't part of it, but they looked at it and they took note of what went on in the church. They took note of what the church's priorities were. And this is what one observer wrote with great shock about the early church. He said, these Christians share their table with all, but not their bed with all. That was worth reporting at the time because it was a counter-cultural way to live your life. To share your table with all, but only to share your bed with your spouse. In the New Covenant community, we honor marriage not because it's the holy grail in terms of human fulfillment. Jesus wasn't married, and he lived a perfectly full life. We honor marriage because we love our brothers and sisters. And we want to see strong marriages instead of crumbling ones. We honor marriage because it's a gift given to us by a good God. A God who knows the best way for sexual relationships to flourish and thrive. A God who loves to see us use sex in a way that creates deep, beautiful bonds between people. Not in a way that's driven by selfishness and lack of respect. 
Not in a way that tears communities apart. Sexual immorality is one threat to a loving community. Verse 5 gives us another threat. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. If sexual immorality can destroy a community, so can greed. We've already heard about love of the brother and love of the stranger. Here we're called to avoid love of money. This kind of love will strangle love of the brother and love of the stranger. Now most of the people this letter was written to would not have been people who were in danger of loving money because they had lots of it. They were in danger of loving money because their money and their possessions were under threat. We learned that in chapter 10. Love of money can get a grip on any of us, no matter how much we have or don't have. Some of us are going through the Life Explored course on Sunday afternoons. And one of those sessions says this about love of money. Money drives you mercilessly. Because even when you think you've made it, you never have quite enough. Living for wealth is exhausting. It's so exhausting that it will squeeze out our love for others. If we love money, then we are going to make sacrifices for the sake of money. And the things we will sacrifice will be love for our brothers and sisters and love for the stranger. You can't love money and be a generous person. So how do you and I avoid love of money? Verse 5 says, be content with what you have. Okay then, how do we get that kind of contentment? We get it by looking to God for security. Not to money, not to anything else. Verse 5 again, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? The thing that frees us from loving money, the thing that allows us to be content with what we have, is the assurance of God's never failing care. You'll see that verse 5 is a quotation there. And there are several places in the Old Testament where we find a form of those words in verse 5. And in every case, God's promise comes to someone who's in a situation of uncertainty. They're in a situation of great fear about the future. God says this to Jacob when he's on the run from his brother Esau, who's trying to kill him. God says this to Israel when they're about to begin the conquest of the promised land. Faced with people who would like to kill them. God says this to Solomon when he's about to inherit the throne from his father David. 
And in each situation, the reassurance comes from God. Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. Tim Keller has pointed out that nobody else can say this to us. Everybody else will leave us. Even the best spouse. Even the best friends. Some of them will fail you. But even the best of them will die. Or you will die and leave them. Only God will always be there. And so only the person who's trusting in God can say with confidence, I will not be afraid. And this security in God is what liberates us to go and love others. Even the unlovely. You and I can love difficult people because we're not looking to those people for our fulfillment in life. We're not expecting that our contentment and our security is going to come from those people. We're secure because God will never leave us or fail us. And so we can love and we can persevere even with difficult people. Because we know that if they fail us, life isn't going to fall apart for us. And so then what does it say when someone turns their back on the church community because the community has let them down in some way? What does that say? It says that man or woman was not looking to God for their security and their contentment. They were looking for it in those other human beings. But that is a misguided way for us to live. The only thing that will save us from disillusionment and cynicism towards church, the only thing that enables us to keep on loving the church, is the fact that our ultimate confidence is not in the church. It's in God who will never leave us And never forsake us. And that gives us freedom to love others. So the worshipping community is a community of love. It's a community that's looking to God for its security. And it's a community that day by day is sustained by God's grace in Christ. Look briefly at the last verses. Verses 7 to 9. Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. It is good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace, not by eating ceremonial foods, which is of no benefit to those who do so. Apparently, this church was being exposed to some strange teachings. The church was being told that spiritual nourishment could somehow be gained from the food that they ate. Now, we don't know the details. 
It's been suggested maybe this was a call back to Judaism to go back to celebrating the Passover and the other sacrificial meals. Another suggestion is that the Lord's Supper was being presented in such a way that it gave you, the people were being told, some kind of spiritual power if you ate it. We really don't know exactly what the details were. But the point is, this community is being tempted to look for their spiritual nourishment in things that are not going to give them spiritual nourishment. But verse 9 says this kind of teaching is strange because it is foreign to the church of Jesus Christ. It's not the message the church was founded on. From day one and ever after, the church's true nourishment comes from Jesus himself. And that's why verse 7 points back to the leaders who first came and spoke the word of God. They came with God's word and their lives showed the power of God's word. They had been so changed by this themselves that their lives were worth imitating. And what was the secret of these leaders with a powerful message and authentic lives? In verse 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. The teachers who point us to Jesus may change. Our own circumstances will certainly change over the course of a life. But Jesus does not change. He is the mediator of the new covenant. He's able to help us in every temptation. He's the one who can give us rest in every situation. He's the one who's able to feel sympathy with our every weakness. He's the one able to give us the mercy and grace we need each day. His once for all sacrifice was enough for every sin. On the cross, he was forsaken, so his people will never be forsaken. His blood cleanses us right to the core. He is the king who will one day make his enemies his footstool. He's the champion who has gone ahead of us. He's the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. He's the heir to all of God's glory. And he's not ashamed to call you and me his brothers and sisters. Co-heirs to God's glory. He is God's final word to us. He's all we need. The only thing that will strengthen our hearts day after day and year after year is the grace that flows to us through Jesus Christ. And so if we are to be a truly worshipping community, we must not get carried away by any other teaching. We mustn't go chasing any other source of spiritual strength. Maybe as we've looked at this passage, you've realized this is calling you to change your thinking in some way. 
Maybe to change your thinking about what worship is. That it's more than just songs. More than just you and God. Maybe you're being called to change your thinking about the value and the importance of community when it comes to worship. Maybe you had thought you could worship God acceptably all by yourself. It's time to change. Maybe you thought your personal life was your own business. It's time to change that thinking. Our private behavior will affect those around us. What we do in private will either make us people who build community or people who harm and destroy community. Maybe some of us read this and realize we need to stop searching for the silver bullet that will turn us into all conquering Christians. The only thing that will strengthen and sustain us over a lifetime is God's grace in Christ. Every day, we have to look to the throne of grace for another day's supply. And hopefully, as we read this passage, we realize the good news is, because of Jesus, we are never alone in this. In Jesus, God's promise is fulfilled to us. Never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. And so let's close by joining together in worshiping and thanking this God who never, ever leaves us alone. We're not alone, for Christ is here.